Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Kate Alcott's Hollywood novels take us inside the sparkle of the star system to reveal the real people like Clark Gable and Carol Lombard on the set of Gone with the Wind and purity icon Ingrid Bergman and her spectacular fall from grace as a darling of the American public. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Kate talks about growing up in Los Angeles, being a Hollywood insider and assesses how well women are doing today compared with early Hollywood. But before we get to Kate, just a reminder, a full transcript of the interview can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Kate's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Kate. Hello there, Kate, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Kate, look, I was really touched when I discovered that you've just very recently married and you're giving this time to do this interview when you've had a lot of great excitement in your personal life. So let me just first um, offer you our congratulations and thank you for giving us the time. Well, thank you very much. Did it all go well? (laughs) Yes, it did. It all went well with 400 family members on both sides. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh, that sounds a pretty big party. Look, um, you're an experienced journalist who's used, you obviously used to writing as such, but what made you decide to move into fiction? And was there a, a once upon a time moment when you thought something grabbed your insides and you said, I've really got to write fiction? Well, you know, um, it was basically always a dream of mine. From the time I was, I think, about 10. And I, other women have said this, but it had a real influence. Uh, I was quite taken with uh, uh, Louise May Alcott's story of Joe March and identified with her. She wanted to be a writer. It's this character that, that she had created. And I always felt that that was the beginning. I just knew almost automatically that what I wanted to do was to write fiction. And, of course, that had to wait a number of years. Um, and uh, But eventually I was able to do it. Yeah. So, so I gather you grew up in L.A., but possibly not in the Hollywood part of L.A. You've now published four highly praised historical novels, and several of them dip very heavily into the early years of Hollywood. Um could you talk a little bit about your background in LA and, and possible insider connections that give you unusual insight into how things worked there? Well, I think that growing up in Los Angeles is an experience all in of itself. Uh, we really, um, in my lifetime as a young teenager, you lived and breathed the Hollywood stuff. 
I remember um, my father bringing home a copy of the evening newspaper. And even then it struck me, we were so focused on what was happening with Hollywood. And here it was, four-inch headlines on the evening news saying, Liz has flu. Sort of, you know, the equivalent of World War III. And <laughs> that's, of course, Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, I, I thought I had a glimmer at that time <laughs> that we might have a somewhat skewed idea of our importance. <laughs> but um, the, uh, and then, so I grew up in that atmosphere, even though not in a Hollywood family. Now, my husband, Frank Mankiewicz, my deceased husband, um, did, and his family was very much a Hollywood family. His father was the writer of Citizen Kane. His uncle did All About Eve and many, many movies. Frank, I mean, um, Joe Mankiewicz. And um, so there were, he grew up taking for granted uh, Hollywood in a much closer way than me. He had movie stars living to the left, to the right, and it was all normal, you know. He saw them as real people. We had a lot of fun when I wrote um, uh, uh, the um, A of Stardust. We had a lot of fun putting together. He used to tell me about the parties his mother and father would give. And so we actually visited the house where he grew up and walked through it. And my imagination clicked in. And so I wrote a scene. Uh, about a party at the banquet, <laughs> and that was fun because that was part of um, part of what drew my attention to writing about it. Um, it was a different scenario in the Hollywood Daughter. That was more being very aware of, um, of you know the whole atmosphere when the McCarthy hearing. People were afraid of being their 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 lives their livelihood was ruined because they were branded as communists, and um, there were witch hunts going on during those years. And I thought, what would it be like to live in that atmosphere, both of glamour and fear? And so I created a young girl the Hollywood daughter who grew up in a world laced with the glamour and fear. And I've always wanted to um, see, see places that I write about and go to them. That's really important um, as much as possible. I went to Lowell to see the places where the Lowell girls worked in the mills in the early 1800s. Anyway, that's going off your question. That's from Hollywood <laughs> to uh, New England. Yeah. The, the Hollywood Daughter, which is your most recent book, um, that very much focuses on Ingrid Bergman and the real-life scandal that did erupt about her affair with Roberto Rossellini. It was seen as being totally scandalous in those years. I wondered uh, what drew you to that particular topic and was... Ingrid Bergman, a, a personal favorite of yours growing up? Well, she was very, she wasn't as, uh, she wasn't totally, totally 
they, the, I think the one I really fell in love with was Carol Lombard, but that's the book back. That's, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'd I love to talk see. about that one too because you, you do paint a wonderful picture of Carol. We will talk about Carol later because you do paint a wonderful picture of her. Ingrid obviously was a very different sort of personality, wasn't she? Was She came over almost as being a Swedish ice cube in a way, didn't she? She did initially. And, of course, I remember being on my bike uh, as a kid and riding down the street with one of my friends, and she yelled out and said, did you hear Ingrid Bergman had a baby? And I... You know, she wasn't married, and uh, I mean, she was married, but she, you know, and uh, I was so shocked because she was an icon uh, of perfection. She was, as you said, so so clear, clear and, and clean, and and it turned out she was human, yes. and that that really, I I thought. What would it be like if this was someone that you just looked up to? You know, we all have our heroes and our heroines from childhood. And what you see is not always what you <laughs> what you would see years later. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, I, I thought that Ingrid got treated terribly in this country. It was just shocking even then to realize she was denounced on the Senate, U.S. Senate floor. She was banned from the United States uh, for a couple of years. Uh, work dried up here, but continued in, to flourish in Europe. And then she came back to celebration and, and uh, winning. And that story, that was a story of hitting bad times, and surviving them, and being brave enough to be yourself. I think that's yes. kind of a theme of all women. Yes, and you, you, one of the other themes has been that taking a young, a younger woman, even a young girl's viewpoint, and um, telling the story through her eyes. And you did the same with your first novel, The Dressmaker, which takes the story of the aftermath of the Titanic. It enjoyed. It was a great launch for you, wasn't it? It was a bestseller. It follows a young woman who joined the Titanic voyage as a dressmaker for a very rich woman. And once again, there though, um, I don't, I can't recall really where did had the Titanic movie already been made when you you wrote that book? Oh yes, no, I had that. But what really started me on that book was a story of my mother. My mother immigrated from Ireland to the United States. And I start the book out, as you might recall, uh, yep. with this woman, an upstairs maid in Belfast, or she yes. in truth, in real life is Belfast, and yes. throwing her cap at the window at the uh, mirror and marching out and going down to the docks and getting on one of the ships. Well, that was my mother. Um, and so I thought, what would my mother's story have been like? if she had been on the Titanic. So that's where that started. But, you know, I've always loved, I needed to get an anchor for each story. And one of the things that grabbed me about the Titanic was only one lifeboat went back to pick up survivors. After Only one. 
as that immense, magnificent ship sank and with all the lives lost. And I thought, only one. And this dress designer that I write about, uh, she had commandeered one of the lifeboats. She came under great criticism for that later. I went down to the National Geographic um, Museum in Washington, D.C. at one point where they had a replica of the lifeboat, just one of the lifeboats off of the Titanic. It blew me away. You could stand there in front of it and imagine how empty it was and how many people all of them were dying. So each book, um, and I wanted, I wanted, uh, my heroine in, um, uh, the dressmaker to really be trying hard for a new life, which as was my mother. So yes. I said to my mother, you know, <laughs> I'll tell your story in the midst of mine. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yes. And then a touch of stardust really did captivate my heart. Your, your portrayal of the relationship between Carol Lombard and Clark Gable and all the carry-on that went on the set of the making of Gone the Wind because it's very much set against that background of the making of that monumental movie Gone with the Wind. Um, it, It just really paints a picture of Hollywood at that time. And I must admit, I didn't really know about the consequence consequential story and really the sadness of the ending of it all in real life but it delves into the politics of uh, Hollywood's relationship with Nazi Germany as well so you become a little bit more political in that one I think don't you? Yes Mm -hmm. I I certainly did and I did in The Hollywood Daughter too Um, yeah but you know my years in journalism there's a lot of politics so uh, the the political weaving in and out of the glamour and the story of Hollywood, uh, I felt was important to give extra dimension. Did you were you a fan of Carol Lombard yourself, or, oh, or was well, it someone you discovered as, as you went along? I think well, I think I discovered her as I went along. But you know what I try to do. Uh, when, with Carol Lombard, uh, Ingrid Bergman, or any of the major true life characters, I do as much research to give me a really strong sense of connection of what they actually truly said. So I use some of the things that they said in their words and weave it into the story. So that, uh, that's been a part of of building and and when I saw some of the things Carol Lombard did, she was a real hoot, and I would have loved to put my feet up and have a talk with her. Yes, and she and she was exuberant about her love for Clark Gable. Uh, the uh, you know the obviously turbulent times. I think the marriages in Hollywood are under such intense scrutiny all the time. They deserve some sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she um, she was just so alive. I really felt as uh, she became one of my favorite characters of any of my books. Yes, and that comes through. But it's lovely to think that 
that some of the dialogue that you give her is are things that she said in real life. Oh yes, mm-hmm. particularly Carol. Yeah, that, that made yeah. her bounce more, and I thought, why not? She had to say, give her her voice. <clears throat> There's this early scene where she comes. This reporter wants to do an interview, and these two young girls who are supposed to be monitoring the the questions, and she just blows them away. <laughs> Step out of her trailer, <laughs> yeah. trailer, and says, "It's the kind of, well, I, <laughs> I just made me laugh." Yeah, yep. There's also a strong sense of highlighting the circumstances for women in the movie industry in those years, whether they're starlets hoping to make it big as stars on screen or the uh, script writers, and giving recognition to some, quotes forgotten names, like Frances Marion, who I guess you couldn't really say she was forgotten because she won two Academy Awards, but she has disappeared a bit into oblivion now, hasn't she? Oh, yes, and there were a number of women, and they were in many of the total um, vanguard of, of the industry. Uh, and I think there's more, there hasn't been enough written about that in, uh, in nonfiction either. The, um, there, there was a very strong presence of women in some of the early, you know, there's some magnificent silent films. And Mary Pickford, she was a business genius. And, uh, knew what she was doing, and she was also uh, a great actress. And there were Frances Marion. She had actually power at a certain point. That's what disappeared for women in the industry. So we're in a very interesting and turbulent time now and seeing how women get more access to the function and making and decision-making portion of their art. And it's better than it used to be. But for a long time, people like Frances Marion just drifted into the past. Yes. I'm hoping there's good news for that. Do you think that... And I hope there'll be more women. Have women got back to where they were in the early years yet, do you think? I really can't say. I don't know. I don't Uh think so. Uh I, I think... It's, it's relative to the time that you're in. At yes. Least it, it, you know, the first step was acknowledging the fact, what, you mean women won Academy Awards for directing and writing and producing and acting? Uh, it was seen as taking over so much of as the male world. <laughs> once, once, not to be too cynical, but once the industry began to make a lot of money, um, it uh, became more of a man's world. Yes, yeah, that seems to happen <laughs> over and over again, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> would you, could you give us an idea of your work process? First of all, how do you decide on the next book? And then how do you go about beginning that process? Do you do a lot of research before you start writing a single word, or how, how, do, how does that work? Yes, I try to do that. Uh, I mean, I do that. I, I, maybe not a huge amount. In some, it's more than in others. Um, Harriet and Isabella, which is a book I wrote uh, under my own name, um, 
it was the uh, Henry Ward Beecher adultery trial that caught my attention. Uh, yeah. In the dress maker, it was the <clears throat> one lifeboat going back. And I, what I had access to were the transcripts of the hearings, the, the uh, U.S. hearings into the scandal of why that ship sank, which began the very next day at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York after the sinking. So as you read the transcript of these people testifying and being questioned, uh, you get quite a bit of the raw, stunned, we just got, this just happened feeling. And that was very important. And um, uh, I, uh, I walk around the subject for a while, and as with any writer, I have projects that hmm, went two or three chapters, and then I thought, no, maybe another time. <clears throat> no, it's not bouncing alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like the range of stories. I like a woman at the center, um, the... Um, but I always look for a key, a trigger that lets me inside a story. And what do you, what was the trigger, say, for a touch of stardust? What was the trigger for that, do you think? Um, well, I think basically it was Carol Lombard and Clark Gable. Um, yes. The, um, they drew me and Gone with the Wind was such a, that it enthralled me when I saw it. I had mm. read the book. I, I know it's false now. I'm glad I read back when I <laughs> wasn't yes. discriminating. And it's, um, it was basically that when there was a, there was a love story at the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned writing under your own name, but for, for people listening who aren't so familiar, Kate Olcott is your writer name for these historic Hollywood novels. Is it Patricia O'Brien that you write under as well? Yes, yes, that's correct. And I will and tell you a story of why. <laughs> You're interested. <yes. laughs> um, I wrote several novels under my own name, and they did fine. Um, and uh, then I wrote. I got all drawn into the, uh, um, you know, the, the dressmaker, as I told you, and I'd gone and seen the lifeboat, and I decided to write that book. And it was, by the time I had it finished and ready to send to my editor, it was uh, the 2008 crash of the economy when we all fell into recession here in the U.S., and... Uh, I sent off my manuscript of the dressmaker, thought it would sell. I was spoiled, or they all sold fast, and uh, it got returned. And then uh, my agent said, hmm, I don't know what happened there. And she sent it out to a couple more, and they returned it too. Wasn't quite up to whatever. And then they sent it. She kept sending it. Finally, we had... 13 rejections of the dressmaker, and my agent, a wonderful person named Esther Newberg <laughs> in New York, said, Pat, it's not the writing, it's the economy. 
the book industry is crashing and they're afraid to take a chance. So she said, would you be interested in publishing under another name? Then they don't have to check. They don't have to get all worried and check, you know, uh, how much money the prior book made. And so I said, okay, if that was legal. She said, certainly legal. Lots of authors do it. So I chose Kate Alcott. And um, the the, uh, dressmaker was sent out. And it was bought by a wonderful editor at Random House in two days for more money than I had ever received. How <laughs> and amazing. New York Times, <laughs> and it made the New York Times bestseller list. So it made, the story makes me laugh because I hope that uh, other people who are trying to break into the business, uh, young writers, just listen to kind of some of the absurdities and don't blame yourself for everything. <laughs> oh, but that's a wonderful just, story. Yeah. And so did you yeah. choose the name Orcott from Louisa May Orcott, a little woman? Oh, how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, I did. That's that wonderful. Was my salute. <laughs> that was my salute to Louisa. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Look, turning... To your wider career, away from the specific books, we have mentioned a little a bit about your earlier life and your journalistic work. I'm curious as to whether you actually covered Hollywood or the entertainment industry as a journalist before you started writing about it. Um, and, and maybe also just a little bit of a background on what those first books, as Patricia O'Brien were, were they related to Hollywood in any way? No, they weren't. Um uh, no, no, I'm thinking back here. Uh, one was on the, uh, the adultery trial of Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. Um, and no, they didn't have a Hollywood connection. Were they nonfiction? Uh, no, they were, they were fiction. I had written three nonfiction books. Uh, I have a total of 12 out there. Okay, yeah. Uh, the first book was quite a number of years ago uh, called The Woman Alone, and it was on uh, women's lives and living alone. And the second book was on marriages that stay together. And the, uh, uh, then there were some political novels. And the, um, I, then I wrote a book with my best friend called I Know Just What You Mean, um, and that's the Power of Friendship in Women's Lives was the subtitle, and that's Ellen Goodman. And oh, Ellen gosh, and I, yeah. have been, we have been friends for many, best friends for many years. We met at a journalistic program here in Boston years and years ago and decided we'd gone to all these places and been part of a lot of things, and one thing we had never done as writers was write something together, so we did. Oh, fantastic! So, so that's um, that's that. <laughs> I wrote and so your journalism. About, who did you work for when you were a journalist? Well, I started uh, several papers, but primarily in Chicago and Washington. Oh, okay. Uh, I worked in Chicago um, and then moved to Washington. Worked um, twenty years as a journalist. 
and a lot of politics, particularly in the last 10 years. Yep. And, uh, and I did radio commentary, tele- television, some television. It's, you know, and I love being a journalist. It's, um, but there was a time where I was always dreaming of someday writing a novel. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And one, I'll tell you another story. <laughs> yeah. I, my, uh, my husband, my, my deceased husband, Frank, uh, we were in the kitchen washing dishes and I was uh, talking about something frustrating at work and lamenting the fact that I wish I had had time somewhere to write a novel. And my husband throws the towel down to the floor and looks at me and he says, you want to write a novel? Write a novel. <laughs> he said, you can do it. You can do it. You write it. And he, I, I thought, oh, think so? Okay. So to anybody out there wondering if they can write, go ahead and try. Just do it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. Look, I wonder then that leads nicely on to the question that I like to ask everyone I speak to, and that is, is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other that's been the secret of your success? And that's, I mean, in the fiction area. Um, in the fiction area, well, I think one thing I've done more than any other. I, uh, I think in terms that, you know, so much of breaking through is luck. There are many wonderful novels that get written that never uh, get any attention. Um, I was very fortunate with my quirky story about the dressmaker, but I was very fortunate, and that actually made it possible to hit the bestseller list. I did that twice, once with the friendship book, too. Um, but as far as one thing, I'm good luck. You know, basically, <laughs> one thing, basically, I'll tell you what it really is. It's deciding what you want to do. It's getting up, having breakfast, walking, working out, whatever you do, and going into your office and putting your rear end down on a chair and opening the computer and writing. Yeah. And there's no <laughs> other secret. Just that's it. <laughs> well, if you've, got, if, you've got a, if you've got a story, if you've got a story in your head, and I love stories, and to be able to scrape away and, you know, at, at some point people say um, the difference between nonfiction and fiction. And nonfiction is, is a wonderful base. Uh, but you always reach a point, in, even in the most, most uh, complicated biographies uh, and lengthy and exhaustive biographies, there's always a place where knowledge ends. And I think yeah. where historical fiction comes in is what then? What happened? What could have yeah. happened? Yeah. And yeah. that is um, very much part of the flavor and tone of working yes. as a writer. Yeah. Look, that's wonderful. Um, we're starting to come to the end of our time together, and this is the joys of binge reading. So... I wonder what you like to binge read and if you've got any recommendations for listeners of things that you've read recently that you really enjoyed. 
Well, I read it wide Sargasso Sea last yeah. week, and and what I'm finishing now is Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. He was oh, a Martin survivor. Of, yeah, yes, yes. I belong to a book club that uh, calls itself the Swiss Cheese Book Club. It's books that we missed um, or thought we read but hadn't. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think in terms of books now, uh, it's a mix. Rediscovering fiction I overlooked. For example, Huckleberry Finn. I always thought I'd read it because I knew all about it, but I never had. Yeah. Uh, I think now Hilary Mantel, I think she's a wonderful writer. Margaret Atwood, I think she's a wonderful writer, and she's current. There's another book that's current, but it is one that I think bridges fiction and nonfiction, not in the sense of being fictionalized, but of employing the uh, techniques of fiction. And that's a book called The Library Book, uh, which is a nonfiction book recounting the incredible story around the burning of the Los Angeles County Public Library years ago. The whole thing. Uh. Thousands and thousands and thousands of books destroyed. And she has written quite a good story. Uh, and out of that could come a novel or two. Um, yes. So I yeah. would say, you know, and um, I can't remember his name, but The Gentleman of Ma- from Moscow is a wonderful novel. Oh, yes. One recently. Yes. Have you read that? I have got it on my side table, but I haven't actually found the time to read it yet. I've got it here to start. Yes. Yeah. It's very, it's very good. Mm. So I think I'm Dr. O. Oh, you should like Dr. O. Anyway. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Very much into the classics by the sound of it. So circling around, looking back over your fiction writing life, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? You know, that's, that's such an interesting question. Very, very little. Um, I, feel, I feel I've been very fortunate. I've, I've had the great, great deep gift of being able to do what I loved. Yes. And um, uh, I think I, the only thing I might have at a certain time in my life, but I probably wouldn't care now, uh, been to a writer's workshop. Uh, back as a teenager or something, but I was married very young um, and didn't think of writing for a long time. Yes. So uh, it, um, I, you know, really, I think I had a series of good luck, good fortunes, things, things I've done professionally. Um, I wouldn't change. I might do some of them better. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, That's lovely. That's lovely. It was so a lot of fun, you know. Writing is okay to, be, to see as play because it's play as well as uh, laying down coherence for people, readers. Yes. Yes. So what is next for Kate, the writer? What projects? do you have in the works at the moment? Well, at the moment, I'm concentrating more on uh, uh, 
the essay format just to play again, form of playing, and um, doing some things woven around the 50s and 60s. And is that going to result in a volume of essays? Mm, at the moment, I don't know. Um, I'm just just exploring. You know, yeah. you, you take time to explore. Yeah. Before before committing yourself, and I like to, uh, I like experimenting with the essay form. Now I mean essay fiction and essay nonfiction, and it's really interesting to play with um, first and uh, first person or third. You can get you know if you read a novel or a book, change in your own mind or do a couple of pages, switching the voice, and then you almost come up with a different story. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, I must admit I haven't found the time to do that kind of experimentation yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun. Oh, I know what else I was telling you about. When I was doing A Touch of Stardust, what I really loved in one of the great troves of uh, of material available were the old movie magazines from oh, the really? 40s and 50s. Mm. And I bought them up online and brought them home and settled back and took myself back into the 40s and 50s, and that really got me to Carol Lombard. So there was a famous one, wasn't there, Photo Play? Oh, yeah. But, there was yeah. Photo Play. Mm. There were several. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's great. Look, Kate, where can readers find you online, and do you enjoy interacting with your readers? How do you, how do you talk with your readers? How do I think? I'm probably not as good at it as I should be. <laughs> um, I've had a new move, you know. I'm in Boston now. Before I was in Washington. Um, yes. I'm married. Uh, I have uh, a Facebook page. Um, and uh, the people are most welcome and I'd love to hear from them. Um, and I've, I can't always be responding right away. <laughs> no. Get through the hall. Your career would very much have spanned the pre-email sort of digital age and what's happening now when writers weren't expected to be quite so, well, not, I don't know exactly if it's expected, but writers weren't quite as on, on call for their readers as some of them are these days, were they? That's right. It becomes part of the writing and that's, not really my thing, you know. Um, it. Uh, I want to write the book. I want to talk to people who like the book or who want to question some of them. I like doing book readings, um, all of those things, and hearing what people think. Um, as far as the kind of total sweeping, being totally in it online after you've written the book, I, I'm usually thinking of the next book. Yeah, so <laughs> that's <laughs> so right. You're right. You put, you put that very nicely, but it's true. I'm uh, I'm of a generation not quite as willing to uh, bear all. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's been wonderful talking to you, and I'm, I'm as I say, I reiterate, I'm so grateful that you gave us this time when you've got so much else happening in your life at the moment. Thank you very, very much indeed. Well, thank you. And I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. 
You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.